Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by legendary recording artist Don McLean to discuss his upcoming show on February 24th at the Fox Theater in Tucson. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hi, is this Don? This is Don. Hey, this is Chris Maynard calling from Following Films. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Are we going to talk about films? My show is mostly film related, but we do end <laughs> I up. Love that. But I do end up covering pop culture, um, and I'm based out of Tucson, Arizona. And so the publicist yes. reached out to see if, yes. <laughs> just because of the upcoming show you have next month at the Fox Theater. Well, I'm more than happy to. Um, infuse my remarks with any cinematic information. I'm a big <laughs> film buff and uh, film fan. And um, in fact, you can get this thing rolling and I'll tell you about myself a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're going. We're ready to go. So whenever you oh, okay. jump into it. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, <clears throat> I want to tell you, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I am a huge Western fan to the point of being almost uh, a small-time authority on the 20s and 30s Westerns. I am a big fan of Buck Jones, Tom Mix, Ken Maynard. I hope he's a relative of yours. Um, <laughs> Boot Gibson, um, these are, and this is something that grew in the 1970s. And what happened was I met a guy who brought me a magazine called The Big Reel. And The Big Reel was in business for many, 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 many years. And it was a clearinghouse, basically. It was about the size of the daily news. It was a big kind of a gazette, you know, and um, there'd be all these film collectors who were selling prints of different movies and they were 16 millimeter prints and the prints were generated by schools and by the government. And so libraries and the army had a huge supply of 16 millimeter films that were in this library for the benefit of the soldiers, you know, and uh, and also in, in school libraries for kids to see from time to time. Well, I started collecting 16 millimeter films of Western stars that I loved. And then the book started. And then the, oh my gosh, I have <laughs> so much literature on all this stuff. And I just love it. And, you know, the funny thing is that as a collector, we know about all these little things, accidents that happened in movies. Mm -hmm. For example, there was one actor whose name I cannot remember, Walter Miller, who was killed in one of the fights they had. He had a heart attack or something. So we know that, okay. And there was another one who was the brother of Robert Livingston, who was a member of a famous trio Western called the Three Mesketeers. That's how John Wayne got his start, <laughs> yep. was being one of those. 
um, he was killed in a horse fall. Uh, and his name was Jack, Jack uh, something, I can't remember his name, but he was, he was uh, Randall's brother. Now, never has there ever been anyone shot by a gun. <laughs> In all these years, with all these thousands and thousands of Westerns made, hundreds of thousands of rounds of blanks and everything else, not one person was ever killed by a gun, and then this thing happened out in, in, in the Rust uh, 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 scandal there, yeah. and, and 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 people, it's it's unbelievable. I didn't know how I got to that, but I just want to say, never was anybody hurt with a gun, you know. And they and in the old days, they used to shoot live rounds, you know, oh, <laughs> <laughs> at at the star, you know. They yeah. It it is shoot real close, you know, but and they knew how to shoot. <laughs> so, you know, that that's when it started and um and I had to buy projectors. I had a Kalart Victor projectors and I used to go to the I used to drive over there every six months and get them refurbished. The factory was in Connecticut. I lived in upstate New York in Garrison. So I had a wonderful thing that I enjoyed doing. I have Maybe 250, and I'm going to sell those prints. Wow. When I do this um, auction this year at Julian's Auction House, we're going to have a big uh, catalog auction with a lot of Don McLean stuff is going down the road and that whole collection and everything else. But what it did was it, it made me fascinated with the storytelling aspects of film and you know, how when we first invented film, Edison did, um, they didn't really know what to do with it. So it was only the 1910s and then the 1920s, you know, artists, people like Tom Mix would write his own scenarios. He made 200 little short <laughs> movies before he ever got into the sound era. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, you know, and, and, and so they learned how to tell a story and then the the big moguls, they started telling big biblical stories, you know, like Exodus and Ben-Hur and things like that. Birth of a Nation, that was another one. Yeah. And they started telling big stories. So anyway, that's my love of film, and it's nice to talk to you. <laughs> you as well. Well, that, um, that, that, that's where the they were inventing the language of cinematic storytelling at that point. And you can go back mm -hmm. and you see simple things like editing. It was all done in camera. And then you, they started to realize mm -hmm. that if you were cutting away and you could put juxtapose these two positions that we <laughs> internally made assumptions that they weren't showing. And now we're yeah. so familiar with that. Oh, Lord. Um, that we, like we, a, we don't a, see a it cut, anymore. A, a cut every six seconds. You mm -hmm. know? And then, and you, you know, even in the, in the older movies, these are, some of these actors really like Bogart would have a very, very long single thing with lots of dialogue, you know, and he had to do it all perfectly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, if it's strange, if you watch modern films and you just count the number of cuts, we don't see it as often, but you yeah, watch yeah. an older film and you could, yeah, you'll see things yeah. that go on for a full minute, two minutes, three minutes yeah. sometimes. And they just hold on it. And I think yeah, that real crap. We've lost something in performance in that way, and I think that that's well. It's the same in mu it's the same yes. as in music. Exactly. Um, 
<clears throat> it's the same in music because um, they don't go in the studio anymore. They don't have to know the song. You know, they just can piece it all together and people um, email their parts in. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So somebody will knock out a, <clears throat> excuse me, a track and the guitar player will send his thing in and they will, they'll use drum machine. They won't use a drummer mm-hmm. and, and the singer will sing to the track and somewhere else. And so it's, it's all been going down the same, um, the same rat hole really of and having the artist be less and less um, totally competent, you know, 20 people writing a song and stuff like that. I mean, you know, give me a break and no melody, which is pretty remarkable. You know, the 20 people can work on these songs and they don't have melodies hardly at all. Now, do you, do you personally, when you're recording then, um, do you go back and do you try to do everything as live as possible with a full band or is it something where you're piecing it together? I do both. I do both. Um, I've been in the pandemic I have done an album where I have been a part of the making of the tracks and done some of it uh, with guitar and then stuff was added. And then I've had my producer come out here and I've put vocals on a lot of stuff and background vocals and all sorts of extra guitar things and so on, but not the same as being in the studio and doing the work. You know, I would go in the studio and um, over a period of four or five days, I'd cut 60 sides. <clears throat> and I'd use 10 for one record. And then <clears throat> later on, I'd use um, 10 more for another record, you know. And there's something that happens when you're sitting in a room with people creating something yes. and writing something. Yes. You can't, oh, yeah. you know, in the, especially this last two years, if one thing that I hope people have realized that it's that we need to be in a room with each other, that Zoom doesn't cover everything. Even, even before COVID, everything in our life has been headed toward a virtual reality Mm. toward not being with people. And this has just put it over. Now people don't want to go back to work in these buildings. They don't want to be in an environment where, a man or a woman is going to drop a dime on them and say they were inappropriate or they acted this way or this way. I don't want it. Yeah. If they can be home, they're all the only person that's going to say that is their wife, <clears throat> you know? <laughs> yeah. But there's a whole different thing that's pushing people inside to be away from one another. And, um, there's also a, um, there is a lack of respect for nature and where there's a lack of, um, this is my opinion, there's a lack of communication with nature. We are becoming more and more very comfortable with the computer, living in the computer, living with <clears throat> screens and this constant um, uh, sensory assault that we have to put up with. And nature is, well, it's killing our hearing and killing our sight and and killing a whole lot of other things. But uh, when you're not in touch with nature, 
then you lose a certain organic quality to your your life and to your work if you're an artist. So I've always lived in the woods and or out in the desert. You know, I I'm not <clears throat> very sociable, and I try to avoid social situations where I have to be in contact with strangers who might not know um, me and would be offended if I, <laughs> I don't want to be in an environment where I can't say anything I want to say. Sure. You know, and that, and that's most everywhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, th- I think that even if you're not an artist, we have to be in touch with nature to understand our true selves because we were never designed to be in a bedroom, in an office space, you know, in your apartment for your I, entire lives. You've got to put I away the screens. Changing. I think it's changing. Yeah. I think I, they're more comfortable in the room with the screen than they are outside with the rain and the slush, you know, and the fog and the animals and everything else. We're, we've separated ourselves from the animal kingdom over a period of, a hundred years, and I think the greatest art, you know, the, the greatest painting, the greatest poetry, the greatest literature was written when we were still close, and in some cases the greatest films, when we were close to the land, uh, and the greatest music. Hmm. I mean, Glenn Miller was born in a log cabin. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, so where, where, did, where did these people come from? Like... Um, um, where did Duke Ellington come from? And all these great black artists, uh, you know, Count Basie and Billy Eckstein and um, all the great black singers, um, the wonderful stylists, you know, you can name them. I've worked with a lot of them. Uh, where did they come from? You know, they didn't have, a, they came from a, a, a segregated society, but they didn't, write rap music about raping people and hating people and using filthy words. Mm -hmm. They were sophisticated. How did that happen? You know, and what's gone wrong? You know, why are we, why are we so proud of being coarse? And, uh, and why is there so much, you know, on these movies, um, you know, American pie is in this new movie, um, with Tom Hanks, Mm -hmm. um, and it's also in that. It's the uh, the, the Apple movie, Plus movie, right? With the robot, I believe something. Yeah, with, yeah. Okay. And the other movie it's in is um, that Black Widow movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. But and, and in both cases, the song serves a purpose to develop some character. It's not just in the background. I have lots and lots of songs that have been on, which you don't even know they're in the movie, and and you get paid a lot for that. And it's while someone's getting gasoline, you know, you're hearing And I Love You So, you know, being played, you don't even notice it. But these were used for a reason. And, um, but so many of the movies that I watch, and I've been watching a lot of movies because I've been here, (laughs) uh, are so much violence. I mean, they blast away at everything and blood and guts and uh, this, you know, whoa, you know, no wonder young people decide, oh, I'm going to get even and, you know, go postal, you know, and get guns and go blasting away. I mean, it's it's already in their heads, so much of it, you know. It's that in the music and in the uh, in the films, and it's, it's, it's not good. You know, you have to have um, a, a 
reason a character has to be developed to where, you know, a particular individual um, is so obnoxious that he needs killing. <laughs> You know, and and then you wait a long time before he gets his, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's satisfying. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So I went into Bookman's today and decided to try to find one of Courtney Gaines's films. I already had the Arrow release of Children of the Corn, uh, but I had a couple other titles in mind that I'd like to revisit. So I walked in, went over to the Blu-ray section, and within about one minute, I spotted a copy of The Burbs. The Burbs is a 1989 uh, dark comedy directed by Joe Dante. It stars Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, Carrie Fisher, Corey Feldman, Henry Gibson, and, of course, Courtney Gaines. The film is centered around Tom Hanks, who plays a suburban uh, father who decides to stay home for a peaceful summer vacation, but his plans are shattered when a weird family moves in next door. Screenwriter Dana Olson based the script on his own experiences from childhood. He said, I had an ultra-normal middle-class upbringing, but our town had its own share of psychos. There was a legendary hatchet murder in the 30s, and every once in a while you'd pick up the local paper and read something like, Librarian Kills Family, Self. As a kid, it was fascinating to think that Mr. Flanagan down the street could turn out to be Jack the Ripper. And where there's fear, there's comedy. So I approached the Burbs as Ozzy and Harriet meets Charles Manson. In recent years, there's been a call to return to the Ozzy and Harriet Leave It to Beaver-esque suburbs of the 1950s. A perfect example of how motivated cognition can skew our thoughts on history and our current reality. This world is and was a fantasy. It never existed. The Burbs beautifully examines the boredom-inspired paranoia and barely-veiled prejudice that often stirs about in most suburban neighborhoods. I was genuinely shocked at how well this movie holds up. A film like American Beauty that's dealing with similar thematic issues and took home the Best Picture uh, Oscar, it feels dated and slightly naive in its view of what it means to age. Dante isn't raising a middle finger to his generation and calling them sellouts. He's laughing at what they've become. And as a part of the generation that ushered in Nirvana, flannel is fashion and like reality bites. I mean, it wasn't all perfect. I get it. We didn't think we'd be taking over the suburbs, but here we are. I'm perfectly comfortable in my suburban lifestyle, but I'm fully aware that the 20 year old version of me, uh, thinks I'm a poser. And in some ways I guess I am, but the one thing that's been consistent in my life is yes, I'm posing. I'm pretending I'm faking it, hoping no one will notice that I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. But as I get older, I get closer to caring less every day. And I think that's what Dante was getting at. The frustrations that we often allow to take over our lives are a product of our own boredom and our lack of strife. We're at, we are animals who use fear as a tool to protect ourselves and we'll find something to be afraid of just to have something to do. But then again, every once in a while, you will read a story, um, like Dana was talking about, about that neighbor in the idealic zip code who went nuts and did something that people will talk about for decades. So are the suburbs perfect? No. Are cities? No. As long as you have large groups of people housed near one another, eventually things will go south. But for the most part, you have nothing to fear in your neighbor or your neighbor's neighbor. If you haven't seen The Burbs, you should definitely remedy that. It's a great film, real easy to watch. If you haven't been to Bookman's lately, you should remedy that as well. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. 
to blast away and show all this horrible torture even you know i mean the um the equalizer movies i like a lot because the uh, denzel washington one times himself <laughs> yeah yeah he there's 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 violence in those there's a lot of character development there's a lot of good good message messages in those movies but when he gets down and you go and you look in his his big eye you know people are going to die and he he times himself he, he in 19 seconds he knocks off eight mm-hmm. people you know and does it very very um beautifully actually and then he feels sorry about it you know because he promised his dead wife he'd never do that kind of thing but he now and then he's got to so yeah and it's um i you know it it for me personally I tend to, whether it's a song or whether it's a film, a book, if if it's violence, if it's sex, if it's anything, if it's part of telling the story and it's emotionally grounded in what mm-hmm. they're trying to get across, I don't mm-hmm. care. I, it's fine. I'm not a prude when it comes to it. It's just it's sure. pure titillation. It's nothing else to offer other than that. And it's putting itself under the guise of anything but that. It's like... You know, if yes. the song knows that it's bubblegum pop and it wants to offer nothing more to the world than a catchy hook, that's great. It ha- it's when it tries to skirt both sides of that, when it tries to be serious, when it's really empty, when it, it it's in the veneer of art, but it's actually something that's just pop. And, th- and that's okay. It has its place, but I prefer something that's emotionally driven. I guess as I get older, I want something that's more grounded in humanity. Well, everything about sustaining a career in my world, which is performance and recording and live music, has to do with repertoire. It has to do with repertoire. If you have the repertoire, um, you can go on for a very, very long time and overcome. I have lived through countless trends in 50 years. (laughs) Yeah. And because the repertoire means something to people, I always work and I always draw crowds. And that's why on a much bigger level, the stones always work because it's that repertoire that people want to hear, you know, and uh, it's, I don't know whether or not a lot of what I hear is, will, as they say, stand the test of time because here, so there's a. It's going to be very, very mean to you. You can have artists where you look back and saying, "Oh God, what did I like about that? That's awful." Or, yeah. You know, a movie with, "Oh, that's such a stupid movie. I hate it." You know, what did I think was nice once? Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a. I was. Every now and then, something happens when I think I've. There's a movie called Haywire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Salma Hayek movie, right? And and who's the? There's a lady who she was an MMA fighter or something like that. I think, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, she is a she. That was a very interesting movie because she's very pretty, and she does all this stuff by herself and on her own, and she's amazing. And. You know, you look at these Bruce Willis movies and these, uh, what's his name, Stratham, Jason, that guy. Uh, Statham? Um, 
yeah, Jason Stratham, whatever his name is, and I like him. I I loved him in uh, 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 Oh, great movie, amazing Snatch. movie. That's how he got his start, yeah. I guess. But uh, this woman should have been promoted um, and given a really good vehicle and really, you know, a, an action vehicle because. She is, you know, Angelina Jolie, they try to do that, or some of these other uh, girls, they, she really mm-hmm. does it. And she's amazing. And they, they, about eight years later, she came out with this other movie I just saw, and it wasn't as good. And I was sort of sad for her because, you know, there are a lot of really fine people out there who are musicians also that that really have something and they never get the right management or the right vehicle, and that door doesn't open. And all she needed back when she did that Highwire movie was to have one of those guys, like um, the person that does the equalizer or any of those, come through the door and say, you know, I want to want to get you in one of these movies, and you know, or a Bond movie. She belongs in a Bond. Sure. And she should be James Bond. <laughs> yeah, um, well, she could de- she could hold it for sure. Um, yeah, she would the action side. Well, she can do both. She can do the um, the action yeah. stuff, and she can actually yeah. act as well, which is something that's really hard to pull off yeah. both sides. I mean, she comes in with this guy in the first movie, and they're like they're, they're thrown together, but they kind of like each other a lot, and they've been out and had a wonderful evening. And there, she takes her shoes off, and they open the door, and then he attacks her like brutally, you know, and she. Fights back and kills the guy, you know, but it's, it's so unexpected, you know, and she does this really hard work uh, in this movie, and she's so capable of that. I'm just sort of sad that she didn't have the right um, people. Laura Nero is another example of a great singer and songwriter who never, she had David Geffen in her camp, but they couldn't hmm. get her off the ground, you know, and they tried, you know, Columbia Records and everything. There's, it's not necessarily justified or it's not fair, always, the people that break through. Um, I mean, every yeah. year there's wonderful music and wonderful films that go completely unacknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you were talking about something before that's really important. It's If you have that shot, though, and you're going to hold the stage and you have the attention for a minute, what you do with that moment is so crucial because you can turn yeah. that into a lifetime career if that's what you want to do. Yeah, and you can reinvent yourself or keep showing sides of yourself, and people will be open to it. Yes, you know, yes. If, if you think of something like, well, I'm. Oh, please go ahead. I, I, I'm lucky because what I do is the people come to hear me sing; they like my singing. And so, whether it's "And I Love You So" or "American Pie" or "Crying," they want to hear me do those. They want to hear me sing those songs. Yeah. There's that. And that doesn't change. And the other thing is they want to know what's on my mind. And my, I have lots of different subjects that I write about. And they're familiar. Most of the people that come to see me are familiar with hundreds of my songs. So they like the content of my mind as well as my singing. So I don't have to reinvent the show every time. <laughs> I just go and I do a different show every night. I sing and say different things, tell different stories blah, 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 pull something out of my hat, tell a story, you know, and, and that's that's what happens. So that's been a blessing for me because, you know, I can't imagine having to 
rejigger everything every year, you know, in order to go out and do it, do it. You know, I don't, I'm lazy that way. That's by, so it's basically my mind, you know, that, and the thing. Well, I think that there's a cynicism that you can, that we can hear when somebody's chasing relevancy, um, as opposed to just expressing themselves and you're saying what's in your, yeah, like something like, um, your botanical gardens, that album. You know, I to me one of the best yes. songs on there is Eleven Deep into the album where it's Grief and Hope. That's the one that I go back to on that particular record where it's like that's that that nice. that's one that I really dig. But that's like not the one that you would put Thank right you. at the lead. And it's like you're you did stuff like this before where you played in that kind of Western genre a little bit. But there's just something about like the, and, yeah. I don't know. And it's just the uh, for whatever reason that particular moment in time it just felt very honest it felt very like much like a reflection of you and things that you might have been going through but and when i heard that song for the first time yeah. it hit me in that way it just felt honest well i just follow my nose basically I, I i don't know what i'm doing i just do it and if i'm into something it becomes part of me and um eventually it finds its way into a song or a whole album of of songs um but uh it just is all i i just don't know how i do it <laughs> I, i'm 76 years old now and i've been doing it for 50 years and i haven't got a clue <laughs> i know how to perform i know how to perform i know how to you know juxtapose things and do stuff i'm pretty good at that but i um, don't know how to tell anybody how I write songs uh, or why I want to make a record a certain way. Um, it's just got a feel, right? It's all feel and uh, and simple as that, really. Well, yeah, I mean, the uh, I just don't know how I do it. But like, you know, for example, uh, uh, Snatch, right? Sure, Movie. yeah. Well, he followed that up with what the two smoking barrels? Uh, Locks talking two smoking was. barrels was the first one, and then Snatch came yeah. after that. Oh, it uh-huh. was okay. I'm wrong. Okay, well then he did improve vastly <laughs> because the first one I don't particularly care mm-hmm. for, but the second one is a masterpiece. And hasn't he done a couple of those? Um, he did the Sherlock Holmes uh, movies. Sherlock Holmes those were movies. pretty big. He did. He's done a. Oh, those are phenomenal, great movies. I love them. And he. he and I love uh, Downey. Downey in those movies, he's just really oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I would have thought because I like the older iterations and the BBC versions of Sherlock Holmes, but he took it in a completely different oh, direction. Wow. And I thought that that was, you know because you can do because Benedict Cumberbatch did a version of Sherlock Holmes recently for the BBC, and it's wonderful. It's oh, much more cerebral. But then you can have this other world wow. that's like that's playing in that action side of things. And there's room for both. It's totally fine. Well, I'm a big Basil Rathbone guy, you know, so I have all his um, uh, ones that he made in the wartime Mm -hmm. in the 40s. And and Basil Rathbone was ruined by that character. I mean, everywhere (laughs) after that, he had to wear the deer sucker cap and he had to have the pipe and he'd go on and it was a walk on and he had to make fun of it. And every variety show, and he's got a great career going with uh, Zorro and um, you know uh, Robin Hood and these movies where he was a wonderful swordsman, you know. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's 
sometimes it's not so it, good. Well, yeah, it can be hard when uh, it seems like the public, and, and sometimes I wonder if that's just the public or if it's a producer or you know who's making those kinds of decisions where we won't let people come outside of those box. It seems like in yeah, well, I think people want yeah, to work, you know, true. and they make they make make they make decisions like. Basil probably thought, oh, lovely, I'd love to play this. And he got was so successful at it. And, of course, the crown prince of all of this is William Boyd, who's my favorite. Um, you should read my Wikipedia. I actually had a poem to him in the American Pie album. And it ended up in uh, on the wall huh. of the hospital where he passed away. Um, and I live in Palm Desert in part because I came to see William Boyd's house, and I liked it here so much that I... <laughs> Wanted to live here. <laughs> yes, that's right. I do crazy <laughs> things. And uh, William Boyd did 66 features as Hopalong Cassidy. Yeah. So he, he was done in 1948 and then had the brilliant move of buying the movies and bringing them to television. And it started all over again. And he made his millions then with merchandising. There was so much hoppy merchandise. There was a shortage of black ink um, in the country because of him. Wow. Um, I ha- oh, I gosh, I'm so sorry. I, I, you're absolutely right. I totally lost track of time. It's, uh, I, I, I apologize. I would love to talk to you some more yeah. about movies. And uh, can I give you my uh, email? Yeah, address? absolutely. Well, what's, your, what's the best uh, email address yeah. to get a hold of you? Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
voice crack.